0: Hello and welcome to the Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. I'm Tanaya Jurgensen and today Jonathan Miller and I sat down with Louis Stafford of Red River in our second Meet our Archaeologist series. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm Louis Stafford. I'm senior project manager for Red River Archaeology Limited, and uh, I've been handling most of the infrastructure projects that are running out of
2: the UK. Nice one. Thanks for joining us. We're looking forward to
1: getting to know you.
0: Wonderful to have you on. I guess we'll start with how did you get into archaeology?
1: That's quite a convoluted story. Yeah, I was going to go into the RAF actually, um, uh, and they said, you know, you don't have to come on board just yet. So I thought I'd go travelling and. Um, one of my passions was always reading books, uh, ancient texts, really, like Thucydides and Polybius and those sorts of things. And I uh, really got into that side of the ancient history. And then when I came back, I thought, oh, I don't need to join yet. I'll, um, I'll go off to university. So they offered to pay or I could do it off my own back. So I thought I'd, I'd go in. So I did ancient history and archaeology and decided I loved it. And then I thought, I really don't want people to start screaming and shouting at me at four o'clock in the morning to get up if I didn't want to. So, uh, you know, I did a few excavations and decided actually I I quite like digging and I quite like being an archaeologist. So I I went that route. Were
2: you being funded by the RAF or was it that you
1: were... No, no, they they offered it, uh, um, but they said, you know, if you do, you've got to sign up for so many years after you do your your degree and they didn't really care what degree it was. And they said, basically after you do your degree, you'll be in uh, Sandhurst and um, sort of crack on from there. Um, But I had a complete Change of heart and numerous life experiences, and then decided actually I want to want to try this. That's brilliant.
2: So like in kind of parallel universe somewhere, there's Louis Stafford that's wing commander.
1: Unlikely, but yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I guess you said that you studied classics. Did you study classic archaeology or just the classics?
1: No, just classics. Um, I mean, at, at university, sorry, I'll just say again. But at university, I, I did um, a BA in uh, ancient history and archaeology okay so it was a, a joint honours. so i did it that was also sort of uh, had an ancient archaeology so uh, you know mycenaean and you know coming out of the fertile crescent and you know the early neolithic in, in the aegean and all that sort of thing but probably my favorite was was mycenaean archaeology to be honest i was very much embedded in in bronze age aegean really uh, and it wasn't until, you know, finding a job that I sort of started British archaeology as such.
0: Did you ever get to head over to Greece or the, the near and Middle East to to do digs?
1: Um, no, no, I got offered to come out. But the, the, the thing with those is, it's like, more often than not, they're saturated by people who will pay money to do it. So yeah. instead of it being a, a job where they pay you to come out, uh, and, you know, I was offered to come out as a supervisor and an digs but they were like we'll pay for your flight and your your cost of living but you don't get any additional money and unless you've got money behind you you can't do it
0: that is the hard part about research digs.
1: it does seem unfair to
2: sort of offer you professional work and say yeah you got to got to pay basically pay your own way you know you're well you're not paying you're not having to
1: The thing that really like piqued my interest in it there's a 1983 publication of national geographic and it's it's about the Kazan and ulliburum shipwreck by george george k bass i think it is very famous but it's a lovely little piece and it was just beautiful amphora perfectly laid out and uh, oxide ingots and all of those sort of amazing articles underwater and that that was what i wanted to do i wanted to be like a marine archaeologist diving down onto these pristine bronze age wrecks uh, and you know they were full of swords and daggers and stuff that you know you just don't get in terrestrial archaeology so i i, I thought i'd actually try it so um, when i was traveling in thailand i learned to to be a, a scuba diver but the questions at the start when when they do it like have you ever had any problems with your ears and it's like no 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 have you got any other health problems and you just sort of say no because you want to go diving and it wasn't until i'd sort of passed the course and i, I went on a couple of other dives that i came up to the water and they were like oh you've, you've got a little bit of blood there and and a little bit of blood there, and, and I'd ruptured my ears, and and um, even though it was a perfect dive, but what I didn't tell them at the outset was that um, I'd actually born partially deaf, so I, I had no hearing in one ear and only half hearing in the other.
0: <laughs> but, <you> know
1: <laughs> probably should have mentioned it, but yeah, that that kind of put a, put a complete block on that, and I realised at that point, and I think I tried it again one more time in Cyprus. I went diving around Cyprus. And then and ended up having a similar issue. It wasn't painful or anything. It's just my body told me that you know you're, you're not cut out for this. That's that's such a shame.
0: But I think the the cool thing about like modern techniques and modern archaeology is that you know you could still be involved in underwater archaeology using technology, but just not do the actual diving.
1: Could be, but obviously you've got to earn your spurs first. And and, and yeah. sort of going in at, at you know at those sort of levels, you're talking about either being a specialist in something or or managing it uh, and if you don't know the ins and outs of how they start off then it's quite hard to break into it really.
0: So then how has your career progressed? So you graduated with your BA in classics and archaeology and then what was the first company you worked for?
1: I went to Cardiff University and they were a very good uh, archaeological unit and they, they were top rated in was the Guardian and the rest of it especially for field studies and so they, they make you go on Excavations in the first and second year as part of your degree, and you, you have to do well on those. Uh, and in the second, second year, I went on an excavation, and the person who was running that excavation for the client, anyway, uh, was a, a guy called Ben Johnson, who was working at that point for Archaeological Research Services up in the Northeast. Uh, and he said, Well, as soon as you're done with your degree, uh, hit me up, I'll, I'll employ you. So he actually tried to get me out of university slightly early and I was like, no, no, I need to finish my degree. And then I went up to Northumberland near a place called uh, Wooler, which is in the Cheviot Hills. Uh, and when I first spoke to him on the phone, actually, he was like, I asked him, where, where are these Cheviot Hills? And he was like, oh, it's pronounced Cheviot. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm closer to France and I am you. So uh, it's Cheviot for me. And um, we worked on this lovely 10 hectare open excavation site for tarmac uh, called Lantern Quarry. And I was, on the ground, I, I was digging, and I was the uh, main surveyor after a brief introduction to to surveying. And so I surveyed it, I, I photographed it, I dug an awful lot of it as well. And then at the end of it, they said, well, you can write the report. And it was about an inch and a half thick. So that was my introduction to professional archaeology, was to see it from start to finish. I mean, I even did the flotation on site as well. So at that point, it was, um, yeah, it covered an awful lot of bases with my first excavation.
2: I remember it being very much like that in Edinburgh as well. It was like you'd you'd always have to do basically everything. One day you'd be doing civil soil samples and the next day you'd be writing writing reports up and stuff. And it's I think that's I think less common these days that you'd have to do the full gamut.
1: But um It was a brilliant step up first excavation, having to see it from all aspects and being the main surveyor as well and then doing the graphics for it. and, and every aspect to see it from start to finish actually helped me no end in my career. Brilliant. Being able to 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 do the report writing, the graphics, and everything else, the whole encompassing part of archaeological recording. But it also showed you, like, when you got to writing it, where the issues were before, if you don't get them right, as you come off-site, makes you look at it in a different way.
2: Yeah, sort of joined up, knowing where cutting corners in one place makes a hassle further down the
1: line for, for another stage. Well, a recession kicked in around about that point. Uh, that was about, what, 2000 and eight or nine-ish and it was felt in the northeast first actually because obviously everything recedes back to the capital so I I chased the work down south eventually it sort of dried up almost completely and I ended up um, doing various odd jobs before I joined a different unit actually Um, in the southwest was around there for a little bit and then eventually ended up with Wessex. I'd have to check my, my CB to To work out when I was there with them, but it was only for a short period. It's only about a year, I think.
0: So then, I mean, it sounds like you have kind of run the gamut of uh, site assistance, surveying, report writing. Like, what is your favorite part of working in archaeology?
1: For me, it was always finding. It was it was weird. I kind of almost looked at it as like a art. Really, I liked turning mundane archaeological features into something that was really pretty and presentable. So there was not a scrap of dust or or soil around everything was cleaned back and the sections were immaculately straight was well, as straight as i could do them uh, i particularly loved finding <laughs> finding any kind of articulated skeleton mainly animals because i would clean them up and do a beautiful job and quite often do stuff that you weren't really meant to do with them i you know li- leave bridges underneath the uh, the necks and stuff like that because they were prone to collapsing but um i, I seem to get away with it an awful lot and i had a lovely um a lovely horse whilst I was digging with Wessex archaeology out in Cole Scholten, She ended up m- m- uh, making it onto the front cover of their report for that one, actually. Uh, and I basically had a horse that had its front legs taken off and it was down a very large iron age pit. And I turned it into something that looked more like a dinosaur and it was, it was brilliant. Probably shouldn't say that, but yeah, no, it was, it was nice to making something look pretty. That's basically covered in soil was, was what I used to love. That's cool.
0: I'm very bad at, Skeletons, like I always, I always feel like I'm breaking stuff. So I'm very impressed that you can take something like that and clean it and make it pretty looking. Because like I'm, I tend to walk away when it gets like, like the the fine work. I'm, I'll break it. So
1: (laughs) walk away from it on certain points. But yeah, I used to get told off for cleaning things too much as well. So I used to (laughs) constantly around with like a water sprayer next to me, keeping things nice and spruced up for the final photographs.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure, the report writers really liked it. So,
2: do you think these days it's it's harder for young archaeologists coming forwards um, in
1: terms of getting that kind of level of of across the board experience? It's it's definitely easier to get a job now in archaeology than it was when I started out. I think because the market is quite saturated with with archaeologists and there's an awful lot of work as well. It's it's quite hard for them to get the full plethora of of what we would have done when we first started out. I mean, units have changed and adapted as well because like when I first started out, you were just called a project officer. There was no differentiation. Obviously the pay scales were different depending on how far you were up, but you were expected to be able to do everything from start to finish. Mm -hmm. Um, And multiple disciplines, you know, desk-based assessments, evals, watching briefs, the works. Whereas now we've got, the pipelines and other things the massive infrastructure projects that consume the most amount of archaeologists they're they're requiring diggers they're, they're not really requiring anyone to take it further on that that that's already already sort of set up and ready to go so i think the majority don't get that that chance to sort of branch out as much as we potentially did when we started out but there was also you know it was the end of time team There there was a lot of people coming through and and you know, becoming archaeologists, and it was starting to saturate the market. But it was also, you didn't know when you, how long your job was going to last back then.
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's kind of gone almost full circle. I think now we're coming to the point where we're realizing that, you know, people need to be given more, and they need to have a kind of career path and be kind of shown the other aspects that, that the job can include and um, you know, where they might want to see themselves in five years. I remember always being asked that in, in um, annual reviews and stuff back in the day, it'd be like, where'd you see yourself in five years? And you'd kind of be like, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I want to be project managing or something like that, you know, be more aware of the different areas that you could work within, you know, you might want to be um, a surveyor or go into graphics or go into post-excavation a specialism or go back to university and do more study and stuff. And I think there's been kind of a long period where it's just been digging. You just got to dig. And um, yeah, I don't know. Or is, I don't know. Is that accurate? Is that true maybe? So I, well, I
0: think, I think I'm of that generation of you get hired as a site assistant and all you do is dig and you're hired contractually. So, you know, you'll work four weeks with this company or, you know, 16 weeks with this company and there is no annual review. There is no opportunity to grow. So uh, like plug for Rubicon, you know, uh, taking taking me in into the office has given me a huge opportunity to learn about, you know, the post X work or the or the pre X work side of things. So yeah, like I I would say that. Whereas yes, it's probably easier right now to get an archaeologist job. Staying in the industry is perhaps harder. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if it's harder to stay in now than it was. But I think um,
1: there's enough work out there that, that you can stay in. Um, It's just getting those chances like, you know, on on our sites, we try to give people the, the ability, if they show willing to, we try them on GPSs and photogrammetry and those sort of are slightly different from just digging skills. And we do try to sort of implement it, but it's not, you know, very few would then be your lead surveyor because you only really need one of those per site sort of thing. It's only when we started to have sort of multiple sites and need multiple spares that we would then sort of draft in an awful lot of people and they would get given a chance, but they wouldn't be specifically on that job, you know, for the next few months. It would just be in, until they were needed and then they would go back to excavation. But you, know, you shouldn't downplay excavation skills, though, because you do need those years behind you.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. absolutely.
1: I mean to make you a better archaeologist unless you're dealing with multiple periods and multiple features and different types of things then you you don't advance yourself as uh, you know in excavation skills and that's that's the core that's where you should spring from really mm-hmm. yeah for well, that was for my career anyway
2: no i think i think that's a fair comment across the board you know it's like it's the kind of bedrock that you would build everything else off and you'd always need to be able to go out on site and dig stuff you know at, at any stage you know it's um, i suppose yeah it's just flexibility isn't it in giving people the opportunity to have a broad range of skills so that whatever's required and if circumstances change or the actual work becomes different that people are equipped with the skills to be able to do a different role or or you know certainly function in it so you can say oh this week you're doing some surveying but next week you're going to be excavating a roman site and you know it's it's um it is that that kind of career where you have to to be able to be very flexible and and in terms of also yeah like longevity of, of employment you know your people do have to move around quite a lot which is far from ideal
0: okay so what what are the biggest improvements that you've seen within the profession of archaeology throughout your career
1: biggest progressions
0: yeah i don't know
2: like just in terms of picturing like roughly the last kind of 20 years of uh, I, i don't know we've maybe covered this already but just like the thing i always notice in terms of improvements within archaeology is i remember back in the day you would you would be looking for trees to go to the loo and you would be taking your lunch if you were lucky in a vehicle, whereas now it's kind of like Port loo's mobile uh, welfare units um microwaves on site and stuff and I view that as like a massive massive leap forward but I don't know like in terms of is it, that that's i'm I'm always quite heavily influenced by food related stuff, so I suppose <laughs> that's where I'm coming from there but <laughs>
1: Oh, there's definitely been improvements in, in the welfare and, and, and the facilities that are available to, to archaeologists. And like I said, if you, you know, if you didn't have a toilet, you didn't even think about it. Whereas now, I think most people put their hand up and go, "I'm not working unless you get me a toilet." There's definitely been advances in that. It's it's the technology I think that's come on no end. That that's the biggest advance in in archaeology for me. You know, the use of photogrammetry and, and other tools that basically take. What was, you know, you were looking for that 2D beautiful image that you could publicize, but now you've got the ability to sort of take a, you know, a burial in the ground with a few artifacts, turn it into a 3D model that you can manipulate and get that more than one layer of, of recording. Um, mm-hmm. Drones as well, for me, just are a godsend. Like as soon as they came out, it was the, and, and sort of mass produced instead of you trying to have a pole cam, which still had its place and still worked, but having a drone that can give you the, those, publication quality photographs me. It's all about just trying to make something, you know, get the most out of something and making it pretty. So digging sites, drone-wise, drone friendly is what I used to call it. Um, so you had all the sections and everything laid out. So when the drone came over it looked perfect. It didn't look mm. haphazard in your sampling. You know, making a you know doing a wagon wheel on on henge forms or or barrows. So you've got the perfect layout and it all looks perfect. So those are the things that I've definitely noticed that it's another tool in your toolbox when you're actually sort of managing and excavating sites. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: it's interesting the way you describe that in terms of the, the, the tool influencing the way that you would actually excavate. I wouldn't have thought of it in those, those terms before, but it um, is really interesting. And it is, it's absolutely true. You know, you you're, you're influenced by the means that you have to record it so in a way the presence of of drones encourages you to be more aesthetically minded into the actual overall layout of your of your site you know instead of saying oh can move those shovels and put all the tools over that way so it's not in the background of this photo it's like the whole site needs to be more aesthetically
1: balanced and pleasing yeah it's down to like it, it It doesn't change it dramatically but it's just down to the finesse of it so like you know you would always sample the corners of an enclosure because you know you're meant to but you make sure that those corner sections are mirrored on each corner exactly the same way whereas before you weren't fussed if one went to the right and one went to the left because you still had a corner slot mm-hmm. but where the, a drone will pick up on that and you'll see the discrepancies very cool
2: that was the last question i had that was kind of like specifically kind of um, professional archaeological kind of questions. The rest are more kind of
1: like um, getting to know you kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you wanted me to do a bit more of a how to get into archaeology. and I'm, I think I'm maybe slightly too... What's um, a nice way of putting it? Jaded?
0: Yeah. <laughs> just,
1: I'm just really honest it's it's a long slog to get get anywhere in
0: archaeology it's hard but i think that's okay too i think young people getting into the profession kind of need to go into it with open eyes as opposed to
2: yeah i was saying i think we've said it on the podcast before but there's there's no one left in archaeology that doesn't love it you know it's it's not um it doesn't give itself over easily and i think yeah the kind of advice of, of of seasoned archaeologists saying um whoa don't don't go down that path you know hopefully that could um could be enough to kind of encourage people that are determined to be archaeologists to to still go for it and um,
1: It's not that I'm against uh, um, I, I think a, I think there was a, a, a dichotomy in the last sort of 20 years with archaeology. Time team came out and, and people were like, that's amazing you find this stuff every time you're there with a tiny little trowel um, and you're finding beautiful things uh, and then they sort of, you know, show them laid out on a table and, and it's always, you know Relatively sunny and nobody's sweating. The reality is that, and especially when I started out, was if you weren't shifting soil uh, and sweating constantly, then you weren't going to get onto the next excavation. And it's having that reality that you you are there to dig a hole at speed, Mm. but then still use your mouse at the end of it to to you know record it properly. Um, and the idea of sort of, you know, immediately branching into cleaning beautiful finds and getting a textbook out and documenting them. You know, that that comes later on. And you've got to put the graft in before you get to that point. More often than not, unless you've got a master's or some other specification or, or, or something that can lead you down that route faster. If you, if you just want to be an archaeologist and you, you start off as a site assistant, you know, hard work pays off if you are there and determined to be an archaeologist, you can, can make it.
0: Hmm. I, I have it, to say, like, I, I was very much of that generation that was, like, inspired by Tom Team, and, like, especially coming from the States and seeing, like, English archaeology, British archaeology, it was so exciting to see. And then when I started my archaeological career here, actually my first dig was in the UK, and, I was, and people were slagging off Time Team, and they're like, well, they, you know it's not really like that. And I was like...
1: It's. It's. They did an amazing thing for British archaeology. You can't even world archaeology. You know, taunting did a fantastic job. Um, and it does show you a lot of aspects. I don't really want to. I'm not. I don't want to poo poo them too much, or want of a better word. But it's what they're showing is an edited down version, a snapshot yes. of an eval that they'd already done previously, and they they knew what they were going to find roughly when they turn up. It's not, uh, um, and that's not contract archaeology contract archaeology you know sometimes you find amazing things but more often than not you're there to dig the magic deep... of
2: it was that they were able to take real archaeology that was real archaeology and make it attractive and make it tell a story within a, a, a standardized format and I think that is really magical because it's I think they made it look easy and I think it was an un- incredible achievement to to take that and do that day in day out for as long as as they did and continue to do. You know, it's yeah. it it is storytelling, and that is, I think you've kind of touched on that a lot, Louis, as well. You know, it's it's about taking something mundane, you know, someone else's rubbish that was left behind after however long it's been sat in the ground and whatever life it had before it ended up being buried and making that interesting and gleaning the information out of it and telling however many stories there are associated with it. And that's, that is the the thing that I think excites people most about archeology span and the kind of value that we can add to it as professionals. And that was what the time team did. And I think they, you could argue that they were the best at doing that that have occurred because it was so popular and remains so popular and inspired generations of archaeologists you know for it still is you know it's incredible
0: yeah and uh, and what I would say too is that like you do once you get on site you do learn fairly quickly that time team is not it like it is it is hard work and I've been on digs where you know we're breaking down brick walls you know and it's and the construction workers are sitting around and their diggers like laughing at you like it's it's hard it's like construction work It's hard work and
2: but it's still and, fun and it's you are, it's, it can be. I mean, obviously, not all the time, but like it's still the, the kind of crack you can have on site is, is very intense and, um,
1: some friendships. You do find those sites though that are like Time Team or even better. I mean, but it's, it's just they're, they're not, every, you know, Time Team has it as every episode they find something amazing. And obviously, that's what they were going for. An archaeology, though, you won't always find those. We've been lucky in recent years that we've had some amazing sites and, and mm-hmm. everyone's walked away from them going, that's brilliant. And then they jump onto the next site and they're like, almost the buzz. It, it's kind of like kind of like the adrenaline junkies. You know, once you get that one fixed, you, you want the <laughs> next one. But it means you've got to go through the, the humdrum and the normal sites before you suddenly hit this, this other amazing site again. But it is yeah. happening more and more often now, I think.
0: So your, your goal is to find an even bigger wooden idol?
1: <laughs> the wooden <laughs> idol uh, yeah no I mean I'm done with those um, I, was, I wasn't I was even on the, the site at that point I was just rem- remotely managing it so Kieran did a fantastic job of that um, no I, I think Wellick was a particularly lovely site and we've got other ones that are going to be in the public domain soon as well which again you know have many many pieces that a British museum and have got similarities with it's, um can't really touch on those just yet
2: Do you think is there an aspect of um, like within sort of archaeological careers of trying to collect all the different kinds of sites like Bronze Age, Iron Age, Roman there's, uh, there's definitely
1: that in the especially at the start of the career you're like you know I want to have on my CV that I can do Paleolithic through to post medieval industrial uh, and you want to try and knock off all those sites That's that's definitely in the background are there any that you
2: you're still waiting
1: for? Have you got any kind of uh, like is it Greek Aegean or? Uh, I mean, if just for British archaeology, I think I've pretty much touched more than. part, from, I, I never really had a Viking settlement. I've dug in Viking places in Northumberland and around, or well, not the Northumberland, but Durham area and and south. Um, and, they, you know, the desk-based assessment was saying oh, potential for, and they would do like a etymology of the place names and the rest of it, saying this is, this is Viking. Um, never hit anything, though, of that sort. But on the other hand, I hit an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon. So I've been very lucky in that respect. Like the first site that we talked about at the start, Anton Quarry, that had a perfect little Anglo-Saxon village laid out, grubbing houses, or you know, sunken featured buildings, we should call them now, and um, Longhouses, and it's right next to Mailman, which would have been where a lot of the golden age of Anglo-Saxon Northumberland comes out of. And then again, found them on uh, further south as well. So when I started out finding any sort of sunken feature buildings up in Northumberland, it was like finding hen's teeth. And we found, I think, six on one side. Wow. Quite lucky. That's so cool.
2: Yeah, Louis, 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 tell us, what is the weirdest thing you've ever found in
1: archaeology quickfire yeah I know it's quickfire but I'm trying to think I haven't really found anything that's particularly weird oh, I bet you have nothing springing to mind it might just be that I'm a very dull person I can't think of anything <laughs> I can't remember what I said in answer to that one what's well, so yeah well, what did you answer um so now i just looking at a clock now. Like, come on, guys, this is. No, I no,
0: like No, you see, but
1: she can like, cut out the break, and it looked like I just went. Well, actually,
0: yeah, I'll
2: tell you guys, this is a crazy story. You're going to be on the edge of your seat
0: because no, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of what I found. That, that was weird. Red stones, like looked like they'd been dyed, but we okay. think it's like we think they got too close to diesel because there was a diesel leak in the area. But it yeah. was, like, the stones looked funky.
2: That's cool. Did you keep any as an example?
0: No. I, I was riding my bike to work every day, and I didn't want to put a stone in my backpack. It How big were
2: they, like, big as a yeah. brick core. Yeah,
0: there yeah. was, like, a, and they were all, like, together, like like a dinosaur nest of eggs, kind of, mm-hmm. fairly deep down. But, like, we couldn't actually investigate it because it was toxic, so.
1: I can't think of the weirdest thing. Really struggling with that i found it i looked at a coin once and it was a perfect perfect coin roman coin and then i looked back up to tell someone "Oh, i've just found a coin and when i looked back down all that was there was this furry purple ball to the point that i was like okay maybe my eyes were playing tricks on me and actually it's because as soon as i'd scraped it off it oxidized instantly and turned into basically like a I can't explain it anymore. It looked like a cotton wool ball, big cotton wool ball. So cool. Um, Sent it off to the specialist and he cleaned it up. And it was like it was made yesterday. And I was like, I told you it was. Nobody believed me either. And literally that split second that I'd seen it, I was like, it's a coin. And then I looked back and I was like, it's not a coin. So yeah, the oxidization of the silver just went instantly. And it just turned into this big, fluffy, spiky, purple ball. Amazing. That's amazing. Could you recreate that as like
2: a magic trick? For, he- like, you know, if you, if you, I don't know how, but like, I still can't think of what the weirdest thing I said was either. Um,
1: no, Enders was finding a fish in a ditch, wasn't it? Oh, on yeah. the top of hillside. And I, I was like, I have no analogies like that at all, or well, I just can't recall
2: it. Yeah, I, 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 I certainly don't. I, however, it is I organize my memory, I don't do it by weirdness, because it'd probably be overwhelming. But um, yeah, I can't remember. So I'll give you five stars for that. um
1: Roman coin that turned into a, a purple puffball.
2: That is cool.
0: So, Louis, what's been your favorite excavation?
1: So many now, actually. They're all pretty much on a par. Land like, quarry. You have
0: to choose one. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Or you'll die. <laughs>
1: uh, wellick Wellick was a nice one. It had a bit of everything, really. That was quite quite tasty. It had uh, uh, iron age enclosures. That one's in the press previously. Uh, had somebody thrown in a ditch with their hands tied in front of them. Um, had some uh, lots of wells going on, uh, and there were some Anglo Saxon burials. With lots of lots of beads and, and brooches as well. Um, Roman trackways, and uh, there was also a, a monumental timber circle in the center um
0: really
1: yeah so it had it had sort of neolithic yeah neolithic timber circles um bronze age potential bronze age roundhouses i think and iron age enclosures and then roman stuff added on top of that and then there was even a medieval sort of smithy with lots of cobbled areas around it on on one site so it had had pretty much everything and anything it's quite varied Oh, and there was a lead coffin, Roman lead coffin at the bottom of a shaft um, as well. And it had a little um, little square mausoleum around it. So it had, and that was the drone friendly site that we, we dug it drone friendly. Um, so we got some beautiful images out of it. It's just everything just came up really pretty. Yeah, that, was, that was quite a nice site to run, really. I didn't get to dig particularly anything of it. But it was a site that I actually dug myself. I think it would just be down to uh, Melksham. I had a site where there was a Roman well next to a villa that I got to dig, and the the well had several pairs of shoes, um lots of whole skulls of cows and horses and pigs, and there was preserved wood there and preserved leather and there was coins and lots and lots and lots of whole pots, like uh sixteen or seventeen whole vessels down there. That was stunning, wow. so that was that was a good one that was probably one of the last times I was fully fully excavating brilliant.
0: What is your favorite artifact?
1: Singular artifact found.
0: And it said place <laughs> names as a general artifact? So, but he's quite
2: esoteric, but it's pretty cool. Yeah,
0: but also, like, what have you? What have you pulled out? Like, maybe it is your silver coin or or purple footballer. Or...
2: No, you can I've, have I've, your weirdest and your favorite as being
1: the same one. That's that's not allowed. Okay. No, uh, I mean I've got. Two of them. One of them was I can't talk about because it it's under embargo still. Which was a. <laughs> but I, know, I suppose the the one I can actually talk about would be um, uh, I found at the bottom of that Roman well was a lovely intact wicker basket. Oh well, wow. S- stunning. So even though the shoes and the rest of it were, were quite nice and the whole pots, you know, it was just brilliant at the bottom though. Um, lovely, lovely, fine, intricate wicker basket at the bottom, like it had been made yesterday. It was stunning. Amazing. Louis, sort of winding up. Do you have a
2: specific funniest moment on, on site or in archeology span that
1: comes to mind? Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a couple of ones that had me crying with laughter, I think on site. Um, one of them was, uh, the, the client came out with his little drone and we spent quite a lot of time getting permission to fly it. Cause we were right next to an RAF base. And, um, this was quite early on with drones as well. And it, it sort of took off and everyone was sort of talking about what if this thing just flies off on its own and thinking it would be quite funny to the point where it actually just started flying in one direction away from the operator towards the RAF base. <laughs> and the, the the client at that, it was quite a big fella and just seeing like turning around with a blank expression on his face and saying, it's not responding. <laughs> <laughs> And then him having to run across an excavated site, trying to miss all the footfalls and ditches and holes that we dug across it um, through the beautifully cleaned area, trying to get back in signal uh, range for him to pull the drone back. Uh, I do remember a lot of people just crying with laughter. I suppose he had to be there, really. No, it does sound brilliant. Did he Did he manage to or did he create he, he did He did eventually. He did eventually, but he, he was... We were expecting the anti-aircraft guns to start going off at the RAF base, to be honest, because it, we were very, very close to them. Oh, goodness me. The other one is is a really bad, really, really bad archaeologically, and you probably won't include this either, but uh, we were digging in Dorchester, and a good friend of mine, but I won't mention his name, um, we were digging side by side in some large bell pits, and they were absolutely crammed for the pottery. And as, as archaeologists do, you end up sort of putting your finds on top of the section in rough groupings of where, where you found them. You know, you meant to have lots of little trays, aren't you, to say, oh, this is the top context, this is the bottom context. As you go down, and you know, these were very deep bell pits. So you could barely see out of them, and I'm not the tallest fella either. And uh, mine were in sort of nice neat piles, and I knew where I was. And my friend next to me had an awful lot of pottery that was just piled up in possibly one large pile, even though the the stratigraphy on the side of this bell pit had, like, numerous lenses. And the PO came up and said, "Um, so where's that pottery from? And he went, oh, it's from from this pit. And he said, so all from one context? And he says, no, no, it's multiple contexts. And he goes, right, so do you know which bit is from which? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And bearing in mind, he's only just got his shoulders out of it and his head, and so he, he grabs one piece of pottery and he goes, one for you? One for you One for you One for you At this point Like there are fumes Coming off the PO And I was, I fell back Into my hole Because I thought This was particularly funny And I was snorting And squealing with laughter Which then prompted him To come over to my hole And go What are you laughing at And then he's just like and, Yeah It didn't phase him He just carried on Counting out And one for you One for you And then just to top it <laughs> off He went And one for me and I, <laughs> How, how to split pottery uh, by context but well, obviously no, it's a very very bad example but i did i did cry with laughter at the bottom of the <laughs> bell pit
2: well it paints you in a good light because you've had yours well organized and sorted so like
1: it's um yeah i i, I love it that's brilliant golden rule is go upwards isn't it if that happens
0: and so then the final question which a uh, site? It can be a non-existent site, it can be a lost site, it can be any site at all. What site would you most like to excavate?
1: I would have loved to have done the Ullaburum shipwreck, the little Mycenaean one that that, that's, uh, that was excavated in 1983. We talked about it previously. The beautiful amphora, oxide ingots, tin ingots, uh, amphora full of swords. It was just, it, it, you know, everything intact, laid out perfectly. Something like that. That would have been, would have loved to have been there for that. That That's really cool.
0: Well, Louis, thank you so much for agreeing to do this, I think.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No, pleasure. Have a good weekend, guys. And I'm going to go and crack them some up. So, um, yeah, Phil Harding I've known since I was about 12. No, nothing to do with my archaeological career.
0: Not even subconsciously?
1: No, it wasn't. And my, say, pseudo uncle, um, he's actually my uncle's best friend, but he's basically because my uncle then moved to the south of France and various other places across Europe. Um, he ended up being like the surrogate uncle that I've known since I was born. Um, and he's in Salisbury, and I used to go and get, very tippled with him um but his his partner in crime is phil harding and it wasn't until about sort of a third of the way through my career i turned up at wessex archaeology and lo and behold phil came downstairs it's my first day and i was quite timid and it's one of the biggest units i've worked for that far and um he came downstairs and went what the bloody hell are you doing here and I just put my head in my hands and I was like, for Christ's sake, and obviously I know him from a non-professional point of view. And I was like, please, please just leave me alone. <laughs> and um he says, you know, why didn't you say you were here? And I was like, well, it's none of your business, you old git, sort of thing. Um and then he says, Who are you working with? And and he pointed one of the uh, I pointed what I thought was my PO out. I'd only been there about five minutes. And everyone sort of, there's about 20 or 30 archaeologists and they all look like, you know, they've been doing it for many more years than me. And I was slightly like, was now timid at this point. And he walked straight up to the PO and said, that boy there, he's got a drinking problem. And he did it straight faced and then walked away. And so the PA, PO looked me up and down as if I was, you know, trouble. And uh, walked off and I I stormed into the pub that evening <laughs> and he had a big grin on his face and he was sat next to my uncle and, you know, and they were laughing their heads off about it. And I was like, why, why? And he's like, because I thought it was funny. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, um, that oh, was my introduction no. to Wessex archaeology, which was, and, and it wasn't until about three or four weeks after that point that the PO picked up the to say, and, and he worked on time team alongside Phil for several years. And he says, so, um, so how do you know Phil? <laughs> <laughs> It's so, like well, I've been probably drinking with him, you know, since Time Team sort of started up. Probably before I was meant to be drinking, and uh, yeah.
0: Have you ever joined Time Team for an excavation? No, no. Two? They
1: basically the the last sort of episode was, was sort of the year before I joined Wessex in, in Salisbury office. So uh, it's been a while since I've been down to see see Phil and Patrick, but um, it is on my to do list actually. He came about two years ago and parked up in my back garden in his camper van. We went out drinking rankly on it. It was lovely to see him, but I haven't been back to Salisbury for some time.